Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. 2020 is the weirdest of years. On some level, it feels like it's stuck around forever, and yet it's hard to believe that we're here at year-end already. In a normal year, we'd have a pretty regular list of year-end tax moves to make to get you off to a good start next year. But this year, as we've said, is anything but normal. So to talk about some year-end tax moves to make in 2020, a year that can generously be described as a year of uncertainty, I've asked Lisa Coletti to the program. Lisa joined Experience New York office in 2011. She has developed her expertise in comprehensive wealth management by serving the varied needs of affluent families since 1999. In addition to her client service responsibilities, Lisa serves as a managing director in Experience Planning, Strategy, and Research Group, which is responsible for creating a best-in-class wealth management experience for clients and advisors alike. Prior to joining Experience, Lisa worked in the private client advisor practice at Deloitte as a director. She began her career in wealth management at Deloitte in 1999 after working for four years in the firm's employee benefits tax and consulting practices. Lisa completed her professional education at Fordham University, earning a bachelor's degree in accounting and a JD from the School of Law. She is licensed to practice law in the state of New York, is a member of the Financial Planning Association, and earned the Certified Financial Planner designation in 2001. Thank you so much for being here, Lisa. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kelly. So I started off by talking about how 2020 has just been kind of a crazy year generally and that there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, And as we move towards the end of the year, what kinds of things are you hearing from clients, things that may be concerned about, or what kinds of things are you telling them about things they should be looking for or in terms of year-end moves or kind of looking forward to the future, what they should be planning for? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uncertainty is certainly the theme associated with 2020. And, you know, as a result, year-end planning is certainly a little bit more challenging in this environment, um, simply because of all the uncertainty in the world, both from a tax policy perspective as as well as from an economic standpoint. So I think in all the conversations we've been we've been having with clients, we're we're sort of setting the stage um, with acknowledging some of that uncertainty and trying to create some context for for what that might mean for their own individual situation. So, you know, let's let's take tax policy first. Uh, there, there's uncertainty around that. Um, President-elect Biden campaigned on the premise that our, our current tax code was skewing benefits to, to large corporations and, and wealthy individuals, and that the system needs to be retooled to ensure that everyone is, is paying their fair share. And, you know, what he has proposed is increasing rates, uh, you know, among other things in, in the estate tax realm. But where he actually is able to go with that is is really uncertain for for two re- for two reasons. Um, the first, you know, depending on what happens in the Georgia Senate races in January, it's really unclear whether or not he's going to have congressional support 
needed to advance his policies. So, you know, that's the first thing. Right. Um, and, and the second is even assuming for a moment that the Democrats do control the Senate going forward. I think the immediate challenge facing the administration is going to be, you know, how do you address some of the ongoing economic and health impacts of the pandemic? So said differently, I think, you know, he's going to have bigger fish to fry right. beyond, <laughs> beyond simply advancing tax policy changes in the early days of the administration. So all of this adds up to taxpayers needing to make decisions around year-end planning, not really knowing when and if we're going to be heading into an increasing rate environment. Right. And it's worth noting, I think one of the things that I've gotten a lot of questions about, not to deep dive into politics, but just to make a quick kind of a detour for a second, one of the things that folks have, um, I think, are confused about is, and you've addressed it, I think, really nicely, is that folks assume when there's a change in administration that if the if the administration has a different tax policy, then that becomes an automatic thing. And it doesn't because they still have to move through Congress. And a perfect example of this is when Trump was elected, even though he had both the House and the Senate when he was elected, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did not come until the very end of 2017. So even assuming that you have everybody on board, which we're not sure is going to happen, but even assuming that, things move really slowly in government. So when we talk about, you know, 2020, we're talking about what's actually happening now, but you do have in the background what could change. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not only do things move slowly in government, but, you know, we're living in an environment where there are literally so many fires to put out. It's it's just, you know, uncertain whether or not uh, changing the tax code is, is going to get any attention in the near term. So, so that's sort of the first thing that, that we're speaking about with our clients. And, and then I think the second, you know, area of uncertainty that, that creates some context for what to do at year end is really just around, you know, the economy and, and what the potential recovery will, will look like, um, going forward. You know, that, that's a huge question mark. And, how it might impact individual families going forward is going to impact year end planning. You know, sure. on one hand, we have the the economy being um, hit hard by the pandemic. There's a lot of uncertainty around shutdowns and and how this is going to impact things going forward. Will we have a new relief package, et cetera? But then on the other hand, you have markets reaching highs on positive vaccine news. So again, as an individual thinking about navigating through year-end planning, a lot is going to be dictated by how you personally are experiencing this very unusual time in the economy. Sure. And one of the things I think that's interesting about what you, you mentioned is that when the markets go up, most Americans have their investments in retirement accounts. Retirement accounts in your home tend to be, you know, kind of the two indicators of wealth for most folks. With the markets going up, you actually could be, you know, I'm, I'm using air quotes right now, but growing your wealth, even if you're in a situation where your income hasn't changed or has declined. Um, so I, it does create some really interesting opportunities and challenges on the, on the planning side. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I think we should probably get into some basic blocking and tackling that everyone can do. But, but since you, you brought up the, the topic of, you know, a potential increase in wealth in, in retirement plans, 
I think it's really important for individuals um, who have been impacted by the coronavirus and, you know, perhaps are out of work to remember that uh, the CARES Act actually permits people who've been affected by the coronavirus to withdraw up to $100,000 from their employer-sponsored retirement plans and IRAs in 2020. So for those that, you know, are, are falling short on cash flow because of the loss of a job, this is certainly something to keep in mind. And, you know, these distributions will be exempt from the typical 10% early distribution penalty mm-hmm. if you're under seven, uh, af- under 59 and a half. And, you know, the, the, the ultimate distribution uh, doesn't, you don't have to pay tax on it all at once. You could actually spread it out over three years. Or, you know, if things turn around for you and you're back at work, you actually have the ability to repay it over a three-year period and not have it count as taxable income. For, so for those who are, you know, struggling a bit, but for their retirement accounts, this is a really nice way to take advantage of, you know, the, the CARES Act to, to help you out during these times. Right. And I think that hasn't gotten enough airtime because I have heard of some folks who have been thinking about rating other kinds of accounts. And if you have the opportunity to take this money back, especially if it's something that you think is a short-term situation where you do think you'll be able to maybe put it back over that time span that you mentioned, um, it could be a really nice way to be, you know, tied you over without creating a tax problem. That's exactly right. It creates a lot of, you know, interesting opportunities that, again, are going to be based on the facts and circumstances of an individual situation. But it's certainly not something that that should be overlooked because it it does provide a nice safety net for people. Right. What other kinds of things do you think people should be thinking about in terms of um, whether it's CARES Act related or charitable giving? Are there other kinds of things that you think folks maybe don't have on their radar right now because of the circumstances, but there might be a tax benefit to making a move? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think once you sort of cut through all of the uncertainty there's just some basic blocking and tackling that should be occurring every year that you know would apply with or without you know some of some of the uncertainty that we're navigating through so i think a starting point for everyone should always be to get a sense of what your tax situation is is actually going to look like in 2020 is it similar to 2019 do you need to do a tax projection? You know, if you're working with CPA, that might be a good place to start. Or, you know, if you're a do-it-yourselfer and you use something like TurboTax, you can make, you know, can go into the system and make, you know, whatever changes you need to to reflect your 2020 tax picture to get a good sense of, of where you are directionally from a tax liability standpoint. You know, you of course want to make sure that you've paid in enough either through your withholdings or your estimated tax payments, and then plan accordingly for, for cash flow to ensure there aren't going to be any surprises April with, with a large tax bill. Right. And I think, I think this exercise, you know, knowing what your tax profile is, is then going to create that context for, for thinking through year-end planning you know, I think everyone is always interested in lowering tax bills and, and mitigating the impact of tax expenses. So 
you know, one thing, one very simple thing to do, take a look at your 401k contributions for the year. If, if you haven't yet maxed out at the, at the, at the full level of, uh, of employee contributions, which is uh, 19,500 for, uh, for those under 50 or 26,000 for those over 50. If you haven't met that level yet and um, you're in a good situation from, from a cash standpoint, you could consider deferring additional amounts from your pay in this last month of the year to get the benefit of the tax deferral, of course, lower your tax bill in 2020. And then, um, you know, maybe doing this is going to avail yourself of an additional company match that, that you haven't yet received. And, and of course, you know, the, the longer term picture beyond simply reducing taxes is that you're going to bolster your retirement uh, accounts and, and have more down the road. Sure. And I think that that's something that especially folks who we've talked about the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty right now. But I think that folks who might be wary of making big purchases right now, maybe been saving for something and you're not really ready to pull the trigger on that. That's a really good way. And I've seen this with small businesses, actually, that small businesses were considering investing this year. They're not really sure what they're doing right now. Retirement is always a, it's a good safety net. It's a, it's a good source of deferral. It could be a deduction depending on the kind of account. And you're, you're not really getting rid of that money. <laughs> you're just putting it in you know, for, for down the road. So I think that's excellent advice, no matter where you are on the income spectrum. Yeah, ab- Absolutely. You know, retirement is something that we always need to keep on our radar and be diligent over long periods of time. So year-end is a good opportunity to take a, a look at that, you know, through the year-end planning lens to, uh, to, to assist in that regard. You know, I think the other thing um, that understanding your tax profile is going to assist you with is, is understanding whether or not you'll be taking the standard deduction of uh, 12,000 if you're a single person or 24,000 if you're married filing joint or if your deductions are in excess of that so that you'll be itemizing uh, deductions if if you're someone who is perhaps on the cusp you know one thing that you could consider doing is trying to be strategic with respect to bunching your deductions in one year uh, so that you could get the benefit of an increased itemized deduction. So, you know, one way to think about this, you know, for individuals who are, uh, you know, giving charitable donations on a regular basis, you know, I know many folks give to their to their churches or religious institutions quite regularly, you know, rather than doing that on an annual basis, you could consider bunching contributions into, into one year. And then perhaps forego those contributions in later years. And, and in doing this, you know, you could increase that itemized deduction in a single year and, and get a bigger bang for your charitable contribution buck, so to speak. And charities are really grateful for the money this year, I think, because of the pandemic. So if you were thinking that this is something that you do every year, you know, if you double up or triple up or, or whatever this year with the idea that you've, you aren't going to be making them in the future. Again, not only are you doing yourself a service, but you're also getting cash into charities who um, are really being hammered right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a really great point. Um, you know, getting back to our theme around uncertainty, the future is incredibly uncertain. And, you know, I think those with means are keenly aware 
that the need for support in the charitable giving realm uh, has, has greatly increased. You know, even from what I've seen in my practice, you know, even though the future of the economy and the markets remain a bit uncertain, I think donors are really eager to maintain and in some instances increase the amount that they're giving to charity in, in this environment. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, I, I recently saw a, uh, a survey conducted by Fidelity where they said that more than half of the donors surveyed plan to maintain their charitable giving. Actually, 25% uh, plan to increase their donations this year. Oh, wow. uh, so, so, you know, I think that's, I think it's, it's interesting in the midst of all of this uh, uncertainty and, and difficulty there, there is that bright spot. And I know that we tend to think about charitable giving in terms of writing a check, but what are some other ways that folks can um, increase their charitable giving? Yeah, so it doesn't always have to be in the form of writing a check, uh, you know, just at, at a real high level, you know, if somebody does make a contribution to a charity, they get a deduction on their income tax return and, and receive the, the benefit associated with that. Um, alternatively, individuals can give shares of appreciated securities into, you know, directly to a charity or to a donor advised fund. And the benefit associated with doing that is, is twofold. I like to say that it's, it's almost like double dipping into uh, the tax benefit because you get the benefit of the deduction. And then you also get the benefit of avoiding the capital gain. On, on the underlying security. So if you're an individual with a concentrated position that you're starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable about, but you're, you're charitably inclined, you know, that, that appreciated security and that concentrated position, I think, represents a really good asset to consider contributing to, uh, to charity. And you mentioned donor advice funds. Uh, I know they're getting a lot more publicity in the last few years, but can you explain to our listeners what that is and how that would work like on a just really practical level? Yeah, sure. So uh, a donor advised fund is an account that, is, you know, can be created whereby you then have the ability to earmark funds for contribution to charity at some point down the road. So think about it like a private foundation, but perhaps on, on a smaller scale. And the nice thing associated with the donor advised funds, it's really helpful, especially at year end when, when people are uh, scrambling to get their plans in place. You may know that you want to donate to charity, but you don't know exactly who, what charitable organizations you want to benefit. You can open a donor advised fund, contribute cash or marketable securities that have appreciated to the fund and get the donation deduction in 2020 but then have you know the years ahead to think about what underlying charities you want to receive those funds so it just creates a lot of flexibility for those who are charitably inclined and and looking to do tax planning at year end and you can do these at almost any maker uh, major brokerage right like a like a Vanguard or Fidelity that's exactly right. All of uh, all of the large firms have their you know their own version of uh, of the of the donor advised fund, and it's you know really 
simple to open and, and very user-friendly. You know, they, they have online resources and, and mobile apps where you can go in, check your balances, check your giving history, you know, make a grant, you know, directly through the online service. So it's, uh, it's really simple, user-friendly, and in, in many ways, you know, a lot easier than, than writing multiple checks uh, throughout the year. Right. And so when we start talking about like charity, that of course makes me think about estate planning because that's such a, a, a key part of your estate is that a lot of folks are thinking in terms of charitable planning. So just in, in terms of year end and what you can do on the estate planning side, um, what kinds of, you know, it's not a lot of time left in the year, but what kinds of strategies or things should you be thinking about in terms of estate matters? Yeah, I think, you know, year end is another time um, that that folks are are often thinking about transfer planning. I think the thing that comes up most frequently uh, in this realm is utilizing annual exclusion gifts. So, you know, every every person has the ability to give 15000 to another individual on an annual basis without utilizing any of their estate lifetime exemption. So if you are a married couple and you are interested in engaging in this type of planning, you could give 30,000 to every child, every grandchild and and not be subject to any transfer pra- uh, any transfer tax or utilize any of your your lifetime freebie. So we often see um you know, folks taking advantage of this at year end, uh, you know, $30,000 check represents a really nice holiday gift. Sure. <laughs> and, and, and people find, you know, great joy in, in being able to, being able to do this for family members. And, you know, to the extent not everybody wants to hand over a $30,000 check to a 20 something or, you know, a, a young grandchild, of course. So another thing we see folks doing a lot is, um, is thinking about you know longer term education planning and and taking part in that you know establishing tax advantaged 529 plans for higher education and contributing those annual exclusion gifts to uh, to those accounts so that those those dollars will be there uh, down the road when the child is ready for for college and i think it's important for folks to understand that when we talk about like annual exclusion that you can gift up to per person per year without being subject to gift tax. These kinds of techniques are still available to folks in the middle class. Um, I have a daughter who is in college right now, so I am a big fan of uh, 529 plans. And, um, you know, you don't have to start that 529 plan off with $15,000. You could start it off with $100. So I think when you are thinking about your own planning, you know, again, it goes all along the income and wealth spectrum especially when we, you were mentioning, you know, not everybody wants to send a check necessarily to a child, a grandchild. Um, you know, what does a newborn need with $100 of cash? But $100 or $1,000 in a 529 plan every year really adds up. Oh, there's no question. And, and Kelly, you and I have something in common because my daughter is also um, in college. She's a freshman. And I am so thankful um, that, you know, I work in the field that I do. And as soon as she was born, we created a 529 plan and, you know, we, we just gave modest amounts to it mm-hmm. on, on a regular basis as those family gifts came through. 
And um, boy, oh boy, were we, you know, really happy to see that that plan grow and and be available, um, you know, once it was time to write that first tuition check. Because as as we all know, you know, college expenses have really gone through the roof and inflated oh, yeah. quite significantly. <laughs> so, you know, planning, um, you know, we I mentioned five twenty nine plans in the context of estate planning, but it's. Uh, it really represents just one of those, you know, basic blocking and tackling items for individuals with children who are looking to save for higher education. It's, you know, I, I don't like to say no brainer as it relates to anything financial planning related because it's, you know, everything's based on facts and circumstances of one's underlying situation. Right. But I think 529 plans do, in many instances, rise to the level of being a, a no brainer. planning opportunity. And what are other ways that, uh, like if grandmother wanted to help out with tuition, since we're talking about tuition and I I also have a freshman, so I get it. What, you know, what are other ways that, that family members, either grandparents or, or, um, you know, even aunts and uncles, family, friends, and godparents can help out with uh, tuition? Yeah. So, you know, we we are talking about this inside of uh, giving annual exclusion gifts, but, you know, a really nice thing to keep in mind is that if if somebody is inclined to assist with education at at any level, if you pay the institution, if you pay the tuition bill directly to the institution on behalf of another individual, it's not considered a taxable gift. So, you know, we often see grandparents wanting to get involved and, and, and assist in some way. And, you know, they will pay directly for private elementary school or, you know, all the way up through high school and college. It doesn't necessarily need to be done in advance through a 529 plan, because if, uh, if the tuition bill is there and you pay it, it's not considered a taxable gift. And it's a good way for the grandparents also to chip away at their own lifetime exemption. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's not um, you know, subject it, to the exemption, but sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, but that's a way to, it's a bonus. It's a way, for, exactly. It's a way for them to keep their lifetime exemption intact mm-hmm. while still, um, you know, making a significant, uh, a significant impact on, on transferring wealth to the next generation. You know, and, and while we're on the topic of, uh, of, of exemptions, you know, I think there's a, a lot one can do if, if they're concerned about estate taxes. And a lot has been discussed this year as it relates to year-end planning around estate tax. Uh, you know, uh, right now we have a situation under the tax code that in addition to the annual exclusion, every individual has, you know, almost an $11.6 million exemption. So over $23 million for a married couple that they can die with without being subject to a state tax. So, you know, I think it's really important as we start diving into this conversation to keep in mind that the estate tax impacts such a small percentage of those who pass. You know, in fact, I think in 2020, it's expected, the estate tax is expected to impact less than 0.1%. Uh, of decedents. So we're not talking about the 1%. We're instead talking about the 0.1%, which is essentially less than one in in a thousand people. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that that could change in, in a Biden administration because there there has been talk of pulling back that that large exemption. And, and as a result, you know, we've been seeing some of our ultra high net worth clients, uh, you know, taking steps to think about utilizing this exemption sooner rather than later, because, you know, due to anti-clawback rules, which, you know, probably go beyond the scope of this conversation. Um, if you make a taxable gift and, and you use that increased exemption now, those gifts are not going to later be subject to tax if hmm. the uh, if the increased exemption expires. So if you have the resources to make these lifetime gifts and, you know, your net worth is really high and you expect to be in an estate tax situation in some form or fashion down the road, now is a really good opportunity to take advantage of this very high exemption. And not only, though, are there exemptions for the feds, but I think some people, depending on where you live, some people may also be subject to estate and inheritance taxes in their own state. Um, I live in Pennsylvania, and we actually have an inheritance tax that kicks in at $1. Um, And I used to practice in Jersey, and Jersey also has an estate tax as well as an, an inheritance tax. Um, so, I, you know, depending on where you are, not only is there that, you know, you talk about the 0.1% for federal purposes, but there could also be state tax issues. So I think it's really important when you talk about your own planning, and you, you mentioned this at the top of the program, you know, to take a look at the big picture, maybe consult with your CPA or your financial planner and say, what are things we need to do? Because even if you're not in that $23 million range, there still could be steps that you could take to reduce your estate that might benefit you on a state level. Yeah, Kelly, I think that's a really great point. You know, every state does does have um, its own approach. Some some states follow the federal rule and, and others do not. You know, I think another thing that we're all keenly aware of in this uncertain environment is that, you know, the state budgets are, are hurting. And, um, you know, one of, one of the ways that they generate revenue is through taxes of this kind. Yes. So it's, it's super important when you're doing estate planning to, you know, always think about the state implications. And, you know, in fact, I, I have several clients that I work with who have, um, you know, actually changed locations and, and, and move residences because they, they wanted to escape some of the potential state tax ramifications associated with, uh, with being in a state in the Northeast where, you know, the, 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 the estate tax is still alive and well. Um, it's not the only reason for the, for the move. I think uh, the warm weather also yes. had something to do with it, <laughs> but uh-huh. it was certainly, you know, a bonus associated with their decision. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a former North Carolina girl, so I get that. We, we see a lot of uh, folks from New York and New Jersey moving down our way. So, yeah. And when we talk about states and, and family planning, and again, this is something I think we see a lot of at the end of the year where people are looking at what they can do. What about things like family businesses or um, other ways that folks may want to help out, you know, if they want to make a gift to a child? Are there ways that they can do that, that kind of keeps them out of, because I think even the thought of gift tax, even if it doesn't apply to folks, um, kind of makes them nervous. So are there any tax advantageous ways that folks can do some transfer planning that um, doesn't kind of put them in the realm of, again, maybe not the ultra high net worth, but just middle class small businesses 
grandmothers who want to to get rid of some of their assets because they don't need them anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we're in a really interesting environment as it relates to estate tax planning, um, you know, even beyond the increased exemption, you know, we're we're at a point where interest rates are at record lows and we're also navigating through, you know, an interesting economy and and market dynamic. And when those two things combine, I think it's uh, really a a ripe opportunity for estate planning. So taking the example of the family business for a moment, you know, while while the, 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 the markets are doing quite well, we all know that, you know, small business is struggling, you know, so perhaps uh, in 2019, we could have had a small family business that that would have been valued at, at let's call it $15 million. But fast forward to 2020, the pandemic hits and that small business is now really struggling to stay afloat. You know, the business is, uh, would be valued at something much lower de- than that, that 15 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's likely that the very last thing that family has on their mind is thinking about transferring the business. You know, they're likely just thinking about keeping it alive and, and thriving going forward. Sure. But, you know, uh, to the extent they're working with advisors, you know, this would be a really interesting time to think about transferring the business to the next generation, because presumably the valuation is going to come in much lower than that $15 million. And as a result, those individuals can transfer to the next generation uh, and utilize a fraction of what they would have used in terms of their lifetime exemption. Right. So same business you know, same players, but completely different valuation. That's right. That's exactly right. And in the estate planning world, that's what we like to refer to as making lemonade out of lemons. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a you take a lousy situation from a financial standpoint, you, you think ahead and you think strategically and, and keep your eye on the ball, make that transfer. And, you know, hopefully you'll come out on the other side uh, when we're out of this pandemic and the market turns around and small businesses are thriving once again. And, you know, perhaps that family in my example will have taken, you know, a $15 million business that reduced to, let's call it, I don't know, seven and a half million in the pandemic, maybe a few few years down the road, it's now valued at, at 25 million. So, you know, I think uh, working with your advisors and keeping your eye on the ball and thinking about Strategic moves that you can make, you know, act when during this time of uncertainty uh, could could yield real benefits down the road for those families. And you and I had actually talked earlier in the week about Gratz, which was interesting because last night I actually got an email from someone asking me to explain something about a Gratz to them. And I just thought the timing was pretty funny because I was kind of thinking, you know, I, the, the time, as you and I had discussed, is kind of right for Gratz. But Who's doing them? Well, apparently people are doing them a lot right now. So can you explain for listeners what a GRAT is and why that might be useful in uh, estate and wealth planning? Yeah, sure. Um, A a GRAT is an acronym uh, that stands for Grantor Retained Annuity Trust. And this strategy is really terrific for those who are interested in getting involved in doing some estate planning. But 
they don't necessarily have the appetite for making irrevocable transfers just yet. Um, so it's a nice way to get started. Mm-hmm. So when when an individual creates a grant, they contribute assets into the trust, but they retain a right to receive the an annuity, which is essentially the original value of the assets that they've contributed to the trust, plus um, you know an interest rate that is applied based on the time when the grant is created, and then when the grant term expires. Any leftover assets um, based on the appreciation and, and the rate that was used will then go to the beneficiaries of that particular trust. <clears throat> so, you know, getting back to uh, the low interest rate environment, right now, the rate that is used for purposes of valuing the annuity is 0.6%. And I like to refer to this as the hurdle rate. So if you have assets that you think over time are going to appreciate greater than 0.6%, you could put those into a grant and any appreciation over that amount will, um, will grow to the benefit of your beneficiaries. So you're able then to get assets into their hands without using any of your annual exclusion and any of your lifetime exemption. Right. And you're not writing a big check and turning something over that you're not getting anything back for. And I think that's something, as you kind of alluded to earlier, makes people feel a little bit more comfortable. Absolutely. I think, again, it's a really great way to dip your toe in the water of of estate planning uh, because it's you're only transferring the appreciation. You still get back all of your principal so it's it's a way for you know folks to um, get acclimated to the idea of giving to the next generation. You know, I think one of the things that we always need to keep in mind as we're thinking about transfer planning is it's a really interesting balance between the desire to mitigate taxes down the road mm-hmm. with the you know desire to ensure you keep enough assets for yourself to to achieve your goals and objectives long-term. Um, you know, if you are, if you're a self-made person and if you work really, really hard to, uh, to create this wealth, you know, it's really difficult, irrespective of how generous one might be, uh, to start breaking ties to those funds and, and transferring to the next generation. So it's a process. Right. So we've talked a little bit about tax planning. We talked a little bit, uh, sorry, tax planning. We talked a little bit about estate planning and kind of how it relates to the year end for 2020. Looking forward, what do you think folks should be looking, doing, or are there any flags or anything that as we move on to 2021, that if maybe folks are looking at their picture and they're saying, you know what, I, I didn't get around to doing these things in 2020. I didn't get around to, you know, any transfer planning, any real tax planning. What can folks do to start off the new year, you know, in a better economic position and tax position? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I don't I don't think there's any magic to year end. I think it's uh it's really just when people decide to carve out a little bit of time to look at this stuff, but you know, again, I think some of the basic blocking and tackling really applies all year round. Mm-hmm. You know, getting back to our theme around uncertainty, uh, you know, 2020, uh, if it's taught us anything, 
it's that nothing is certain. <laughs> yes. You know, we always encourage our clients to have an emergency fund with, you know, let's say six to nine months of, of living expenses earmarked for a rainy day. Mm-hmm. So I think having access to, to quick cash, should one need it, is, is always wise for any individual. Um, sure. And it could be, you know, a cash account that you have, or it could be access to margin within your security fund or, you know, access to a home equity line of credit. Whatever the case may be, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where you don't have liquidity um, or you're forced to sell something, you know, if assets should be pulled back. So I think creating that emergency fund is super important. Right. And I think, of course, you know, no one can ever tell. uh, We've talked about this nonstop at this point, but what, you know, what the new year will bring. But is there any, you know, I, I think especially people who aren't used to the markets, they, um, there's a lot of chatter in the space about, you know, should you have 80% of this, 20% of that? Are there any rules or just kind of rules of thumb people should be thinking about when they're looking forward? Um, I know we mentioned at the top of the program, you know, maximizing retirement because retirement assets and family homes tend to be the, um, the, largest sources of wealth for most uh, most families. Is there anything else they should be thinking about in terms of asset allocation for the new year? Yeah. I mean, I think that asset allocation is, is something that one needs to focus on all of the time. It's not, you know, when, when you establish your retirement account and you begin contributing to it, uh, you really cannot take a set it and forget it mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, you really need to uh, ensure that you're looking at it over time, ensuring that your asset allocation is appropriate based on your age, stage, appetite for risk, et cetera. And, you know, you need to be, be, make sure that you're rebalancing your portfolio on, on a periodic basis. Because if, if you take that set it and forget it mentality when it comes to your portfolio, as markets fluctuate, so do does your asset allocation, and you can find yourself in a much riskier situation from a from a diversification and, and asset allocation standpoint than you originally set out to have if if you're not watching this on a regular basis. And I know you're a financial planner, but I think some people get intimidated by the idea of an advisor, but they want one. How do folks find a financial advisor or a financial planner? Well, I mean, I think the first way, you know, always um, and, and probably still the most popular way is by speaking with friends and family mm-hmm. and to get a sense of, of who they may use and, you know, reaching out, doing some due diligence, understanding the credentials of the advisor you know, you want to make sure that that you're working with somebody who has a, an educational background in this realm, and you know, a sufficient year, sufficient years of experience to be able to assist you and your family um, from an appropriate perspective. Uh, you know, I think the other thing that people really want to pay very close attention to is how is that advisor paid. Uh, you want to make sure that they're really sitting on the same side of the table as you mm-hmm. uh, when it when it comes to making recommendations and that there aren't any conflicts of interest involved in ways of commissions and and the like. So I think that's super important. And 
And I think finally, and and perhaps most importantly, you really want to find somebody that you're comfortable with. Um, When you're working with an advisor, in many ways, that advisor, you know, is speaking to you about about money. And, you know, money is is an important driver and an emotionally charged topic in, in our lives. And you just want to make sure you're working with somebody who you feel comfortable speaking with openly and honestly about your goals, your fears, your, um, you know, your, your blind spots, all of that. You, you want to sort of find that trusted person that you can envision working with long-term. I think that's amazing advice because I do think that's one of the things that is difficult is if you've never worked with an advisor before, you feel like you have a list of questions. Let me ask, you know, where'd you go to school or whatever, you know, you feel like you have the things that people tell you to, but I think the thing that you just touched on is the most important, you know, this is, it's planning for your family, it's planning for your future, it's planning for your business, and you want somebody who gets you um, and can can help you build towards those things. And also, one of the things that you mentioned that I think is super important, but people sometimes don't want to think about, but blind spots. I think that's just such great advice. I don't usually hear people say that um, on the program, but but you know, I need somebody who can see what I don't know and help me you know, make the next step. And I think that that's really, again, somebody that relates to you, but also can see you and, you know, know, okay, I know that Kelly's reluctant to do this. Let's talk about why that might be. Um, So I think that's great advice. Thank you. And thank you for your time today. I think this has been really valuable for our listeners. If they wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on the web or on social media, where would you send them? Yeah, so... You can find Asperient at Asperient.com. It's A-S-P-I-R-I-A-N-T.com. And on that page, um, there is a, a link for starting a dialogue. And you could put in your information and uh, be directed to me within the firm. Alternatively, I invite people to reach out to me directly. Uh, at L-C-O-L-L-E-T-T-I at Asperient.com. And, you know, if anybody has any specific questions as a follow-up to uh, to this interview, I'd be delighted to assist. And I will be sure to put those links on the show notes. Thanks again for your time. This has been super. Thank you so much, Kelly, for having me. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.